Lord, give us the clarity and wisdom we need to see how passages like this apply to people like us. Help us to to see how all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. Give us ears to hear, we pray. In your son's name, amen. I wonder when, um, when it comes to your Christian life, in your more despondent, honest moments, do you ever feel a bit low? And you think, this isn't really how I imagined it would turn out, actually. This, this wasn't the dream that I had. Perhaps you look around at your circumstances and you think that. Perhaps you look inside and you think, this wasn't the plan. I didn't want to be like this. I didn't want still to be wrestling with these things or in this kind of situation. Maybe if I had a conversation with you 15, 20 years ago and I asked you about your plans for the future, where do you see yourself in the years to come? What do you see yourself doing? Who do you see yourself with? What kind of person do you see yourself being? And maybe you would share some of your ideas and plans and dreams and here you are now. And here we are now. And sometimes when life slows down a bit and we look around and we just, we're left confused and scratching our heads and despondent. Is that you? This is not how it was meant to be. Well, I wonder if if you do associate with some of those ideas sometimes. I think we'll find 1 Samuel 16 a really helpful passage for us. It will be good news for us this morning. Because it's a passage about our God and his king and his plans and his purposes. And I think it's a passage that shows us we can trust him. Um, Before we jump in, just to catch you up, if uh, you've not been around or if it's your first time with us. um, The story so far in Samuel is, is the people of God are settling into the land he promised. And they've asked God for a king like the nation's. And he gave them a king like the nations. You see, rather than being beautiful, distinctive, different people, they wanted to blend in. And so they have this king, Saul. He is tall and he is impressive and he is a military-minded king, it seems. He gave them the kind of king they wanted. But as we saw last week, it ended on a sour note because we're beginning to see he's not the kind of king they need. As Ellie was eloquently and excellently teaching the children, um, Saul was not someone who sat under God's word. He didn't listen to the prophet. He, He attempted the sacrifice, the burnt offering himself. And when he was confronted, well, as we often do, he points the finger everywhere else and he doesn't repent. And we got this window into Saul's heart. He was the kind of king who did his own thing. He was the kind of king who did not sit under the word of God. Um, This week, we're in chapter 16. We're a little bit after that story, but I wanted just to zoom you in as well on chapter 15 because we've missed out a key passage in one sense. Um, But again, it's an example of Saul being unwilling to obey God. Um, The Amalekites were a nasty bunch. They had blocked Israel from reaching the land that God had promised them. Saul was commanded, get rid of them, get rid of their stuff. 
But he ends up plundering them, capturing their king and nicking the best of their stuff. And then he lies about it. Now, with our Western 21st century ears in, we might struggle with that idea of them destroying and removing the Amalekites. I'm sure we will. But there are surgeons among us here who will tell you, you need to cut the cancer out of the body. It must be gone. You must get rid of it. You can't leave it for a bit because you feel sorry for it. Well, so with the Amalekites. That's something of the picture going on here. God has said, you must get rid of them. But regardless, the key point is, once again, we see with Saul, he is not a king who sits under God's word. Which means this chapter, chapter 16, is a story of new beginnings. And at the heart of the story, we see this new king being chosen. And it is the Lord's choice this time. It's not the king they wanted. This time it's the king they need. Look down with me. Um, At the heart of the passage, you see this, this word or these ideas of different words that kind of link together Um. The one the Lord looks to is the one the Lord provides, is the one the Lord has chosen. This is this kind of family of words all joined in. You get it particularly in verse 7. You get it very starkly and is a good example. But maybe if you read it through again in home groups, you'll see that idea. Um, But verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height. I've rejected him. The, The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This is a passage about seeing as the Lord sees. And so as we begin chapter 16, we begin with Samuel in despair. Do you see that? He was despairing. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? Why is he like this? Why is Samuel so down about things? He knew Saul wasn't great. He had rebuked him and questioned him again and again. He had seen firsthand his failings. But he had anointed him. In one sense, he had been his mentor from the beginning. They had come a long way together. Maybe it seems as if all his labors had come to nothing. This king who he had personally invested in, backed banked on being the one, ended up being the failure and the dead end and rejected by God. He looked promising. He looked impressive. He had started off pretty well. But Samuel is at the blunt end of the lesson here. Saul was not the king they needed. You wonder as well, maybe there's some anxiety in Samuel's mind. What will happen to the people now? They need leadership. Will the people of God end up imploding will the without the king to lead and to provide and to protect for his people how will the people of God do will there be fragmentation civil war division will the Philistines the Amalekites from outside pour in if we know something of that despondency if they were some of the emotions that he was wrestling, well, with him, we have forgotten who the true king is. God is king. He has not taken his eyes off the ball. He has not been snoozing. He never loses control of his kingdom. And so he reassures Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul, verse 1, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil, be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. 
Samuel is learning a lesson that we would do well to learn. And I say this carefully, but if we are despondent, if things had not turned out as we expected, things weren't quite as we had hoped for or chosen, when we cry out to the Lord in confusion and darkness even, there comes a time when it's as if the Lord says to us, come on, come on, up off your backside. This hasn't taken me by surprise. I am still sovereign, I am still good. Trust me. And maybe we're asking the question, well, how did I get here? How? This wasn't how it was meant to be. This wasn't how I imagined things turning out. Maybe there are regret over decisions we made. Maybe things that we said or not said, things that we did or didn't do. Maybe even think, right, okay, new start. I'm going to make a change. Perhaps you're hoping for this new trajectory on which to go. Maybe you feel something of that despondency and you think that's it. That's the question of who then do we listen to? Whose voice ought we listen to for the direction we need to go? Maybe it's our family. Maybe it's husbands or wives or children or parents. Maybe it's our employers or employees. Maybe it's our friends. Maybe it's our own expectations even. Maybe we listen to the voice within. But you see, God lifts his head and says to Samuel, listen to me. In the midst of your despondency, listen to me. My voice is worth listening to. I am the one you should hear. Because to be frank, Saul is the example of what happens when we listen to the wrong voices. When we appoint the kind of king, when we listen to the kind of voices that the world wants. And so Samuel, he goes to Bethlehem. He goes to Jesse's family. The Lord gives him the instructions he needs. Samuel says, but, but, but I'm afraid. Verse 2, if Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Um, the Lord seems to ignore Samuel in that. The Lord says, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel's going to have to depend on the Lord for safety at this point. Not just for safety, but for further details as well, for the plan when he gets there. He's going to need to trust the Lord. This is an ongoing relational thing. He is not given the entire picture from day one, is he? He doesn't know the road map. He doesn't know quite where he's going to get to or how he's going to get there. He just knows the information he needs for that next step of the journey. Isn't that striking? The Lord will provide what's needed for the next step when the time is right. It's a bit like trying to um, explain the day ahead for a toddler. Have you ever tried that? So what we're going to do, we're going to get up at 8.30, then we're going to have breakfast, then we're going to have toast at 11, and you can watch some CBeebies then, then we're going to have lunch, then we're going to go out to the park, then after that we're going to go and play with your friend, and then we're going to come home, bath time, dinner, bed. They can't cope with that. What you say is you can get up at 8.30, and then I'll tell you the rest later on. And it's a bit like that, isn't it? Samuel, a bit like that, Samuel is told what to do next. You go to Bethlehem, you go to Jesse, you take the heifer, and you say, I've come to sacrifice. 
And then I'll show you what to do. The Lord will help him with the next stage. There's a sense in which that's right for us as well. We, we might want the road map. We might want to know the end game, please and thank you. But sometimes the Lord just says, trust me. I'll tell you what you need to know for this bit, and then we'll touch base again. And so he arrives in Bethlehem, as he's commanded. The elders of the town, initially they are perturbed. Why have you come? Are we in trouble? But then he reassures them that he's come in peace. He invites them to the sacrifice. He invites Jesse and his sons to the sacrifice. All good so far. Samuel does as he's told. And then he makes the false move. Do you see it? He looks at Eliab, verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before me. And before the Lord, sorry, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Why Eliab? Well, presumably because he was tall, verse 7, because of how he looked. Because Samuel is still thinking through the lenses of Saul. Still thinking about a king like the other nations. Samuel is not yet on the same page as the Lord. Ours is a superficial world of appearances. But this is not how God sees the world. So friends, don't be afraid. In our despondency and our darkness, don't be afraid for the Lord has a plan. But secondly, don't think like the world thinks. Because God will show you Jesus. Do you see, we've seen week on week, and again, Ellie taught the kids and us brilliantly this morning on this. David will be shortly anointed, and he will bring some satisfaction. He will tick those boxes of kingship. He is, in one sense, the king the people need, but we know the story. He will get it wrong. He will muck up. He will let the Lord down in spectacular ways. He will need a rescuer and a saviour himself. And yet standing behind him is another king from Bethlehem. Another king from the line of David, one who will be exactly what is needed. He will not let his people down. He will be the true prophet, priest, king that we long for. And yet isn't it striking King Jesus was not attractive in any way? at least in worldly terms. He wasn't the kind of king we would be drawn to. He didn't have the kind of message that would impress us. Have a listen to Isaiah a few centuries later. He says, looking ahead to King Jesus, he said, Jesus had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Thank goodness, do we want to follow that kind of king? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, behind King David, stands King Jesus, 
a king who dies for his people, the message of his cross is foolishness, says Paul, as he hangs words upon what the world thinks. It's the upside-down nature of God's kingdom once again. It's a kingdom where he says, you trust me? It might not be quite what you're looking for or expecting, but let's do things my way. In fact, maybe we should have expected this, because do you remember Hannah's song at the beginning? Start of chapter 2, do you remember she leaves Samuel in the tabernacle at Shiloh? She sings of this king whom her son Samuel would anoint. And as Samuel stands there in Bethlehem, Jesse's six strapping lads before him, I kind of imagine them all lined up in order of sort of height, Expecting God to pick, well, this, okay, then we'll move the, no, when we get to the end. And there's this kind of comedy followed by embarrassment. You've got this de facto beauty pageant happening. First comes Eliab, made in Saul's image, tall, impressive. Note the Lord's not chosen this one until finally, verse 11. Um, so are, the, are these all the sons you have out of interest? It's embarrassment because Jesse's family were all invited. But one has been overlooked. Snubbed, left behind in the fields, looking after the sheep. And we learn of David. Ah. Do you remember when we first met Saul? What was he doing? That's not rhetorical. What's he doing? Looking for his donkeys. And we said, well, maybe that's a kind of... Maybe that's a slightly weird shepherd thing going on. We said maybe donkeys are royal animals. They seem to be involved in, in various aspects of coronation. These donkeys have gone missing. Now here is David again, another shepherd, a bit more traditional shepherd this time perhaps. King who looks after sheep. Hmm, familiar. One who couldn't be there at the sacrifice because he has a job that keeps him in the fields on the fringe of society in one sense. Overlooked little status. Not the kind of king we're going to pick. We would go Eliab, wouldn't we? But people look at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the hearts. Shepherds in the Bible. There's an interesting theme, melody that plays right through the performance, actually. Are, are shepherds significant? We're not going to spend long here, but it's just an interesting lay-by just to sort of wrestle with because there is some important stuff. Um, at one end, Genesis, you've got Jacob on his deathbed, first book of the Bible, describing the Lord as the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. That's Genesis 48:15. So at the beginning of the Bible, we have God as a shepherd. Let's go all the way this end. The Apostle John Looking ahead in Revelation, last book of the Bible, Revelation 7, verse 7, perhaps something we're more familiar with, from the lamb at the center of the throne will be the shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And if that metaphor of, of shepherd is ultimately used of God, if David will go on and pen a psalm that says, the Lord is my shepherd, then it's right, isn't it, that leaders ought to be like him. 
and little, in a sense, to be little shepherds, under shepherds, we might say. The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they were shepherds. David was a shepherd. Jesus is a good shepherd. And we say, why shepherds? We're not explicitly told, I don't think. But, but I take it shepherds pour themselves out for their sheep. They provide for them, they guard their flock, they care for them, they take them to streams of living water, they run after stupid lost sheep that wander off all the time. They provide nourishment, safety, protection, refreshment. They give them what they need. And when God blasts the um, leaders in Ezekiel, and when Jesus blasts the Pharisees, it's because they are shepherds who look after themselves, not their sheep. Peter will say to New Testament church leaders, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples of the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Friends, pray for us as Shepherds as leaders, please, that we would be selfless, that we would pour ourselves out as the chief shepherd pours himself out for his sheep. And so God chooses this good shepherd, David, Psalm 78, says he chose him from tending the sheep he brought him to be the shepherd of his people Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart. With skillful hands he led them. Back to the story. David turns up late. And the Lord says, this is the one. Rise and anoint him. I have to say, verse 7 has been ringing in my ears, I think, these last few weeks since I've prepared this. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Because you know our problem, don't you? We, we look at outward appearance. That's, that's what we do. We live in a world predominantly of visual media, of Instagram, Photoshopping, Botox, plastic surgery, more and more and more diets, gyms and personal trainers, Love Island, and the value of a person so often is tied up with what they look like. How much time do we spend thinking and worrying about what we look like versus how much time do we spend thinking and worrying about tending to our hearts? More about internals. Let's pray God would make us more like him, caring less about appearances, seeing less as the world sees, but having the kind of grid that he has, caring more about the heart. And so David is anointed as king. Uh, he won't be appointed as king for ages. There'll be a distinction there, which we'll come on to in future weeks. But he is anointed as the Lord's king. And no sooner had the Lord anointed him, given him his spirit for the task at hand, 
equipped, then we find David beginning a life of trouble. It's striking, isn't it? It, it, Immediately, immediately things get difficult. And so, third point, don't hide from the world, for Jesus can transform lives. I don't want to push this too far, but I think it is striking that we see it's going to be hard. He's equipped, he's anointed, his spirit is poured out, the Lord's spirit is poured out onto David, and suddenly, gear change, it gets difficult. There will be envy and anger and plots from Saul over the next few chapters. There will be giants to fell from outside. There will be betrayal and suffering from inside. There will be struggle and hardship. And as it was for David, so it will be for Jesus... What happens at his baptism? The Lord says, this is my son whom I, with whom I'm well pleased. And immediately he goes out into the wilderness. He anoints him in one sense. And then in another, suddenly things get hard. He'll be tempted for 40 days. God equips his people for what he calls them to. Which is great news because in this world, in these bodies, at this time, we are in a battle. It was true for David. It was true for Jesus. It would be true for us as well. God does not leave you on your own for the struggles of living for him. God does not leave us on our own for the struggles of living for him. He is with us. Really, he is with us. Often we can live as if God is dead. But actually, he pours out his spirit on us. We forget he is there. And so David is endowed with the spirit. The power from the Lord comes and there's this transference, this swap that happens at verse 14. I think it's the only time in the Old Testament that someone loses the Lord's spirit. Saul is de-anointed in one sense. Um, Let me read 13 to 14 again. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Ah. This is a tricky section for some. Um, I'm sure as it was read for us by Sam, you were kind of rubbing hands together thinking, right, what's that about? Um, It'll happen again and again over the next few chapters. Uh, Let me say a few things about it um, and see if I can help us understand what's going on. I think it's worth saying that the word evil, as your little footnote says, if you've got a a Burgundy Bible, can also mean harmful or miserable. You'll need to go and speak to a Hebrew scholar um, if you want some more clarity on that. Neil Martin is happy to chat afterwards. Um, We've just lost Matt, so sadly, and then Dave's not around. It's you, Neil. Um, But it doesn't necessarily mean evil in terms of morally evil, but it can mean bad in terms of... um, Uh, harmful or or miserable. And I wonder if in the context that makes a little bit more sense because you do see his psychological state unravelling somewhat in the chapters to come. He is increasingly volatile and paranoid and a bit weird Um, and you've got his staff sort of tiptoeing around him on eggshells. Um, I personally don't think he is possessed by an evil spirit But it's more that he is angry, bitter, rejected, dejected, miserable, because music therapy seems to help him. Let's be blunt. 
if, if he comes and nice, a, a nice musician with nice music, then it seems to calm him down. So yes, of course, there is a theological link. But it seems, it, to me, it's less likely to be a, an evil spirit, per se, like possession, but more to do with a mood, a mental affliction that is soothed by music. And what are we to make of it coming from the Lord? That's hard, isn't it? Um, it may well be a level of present judgment from the Lord. I think that is right. Do you remember Hannah's song again in chapter 2? He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, David, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken, Hannah sang sweetly at the start of the book. And that's certainly true. It may just be that being worked out as a level of present judgment on this king who has opposed the Lord. It's also worth saying that the Old Testament doesn't usually know much of, of secondary causation. That is, it may simply be the Lord's sovereign hand behind this. He is king and he is sovereign and he is behind what happens. Because Saul is like this, it is seen as coming from the Lord because ultimately it will, because ultimately he is sovereign. And we will wrestle with that and there'll be questions that we have about that. Come and grab me afterwards or chat in home groups. But it seems to me even, even Saul's mood and misery comes from the Lord. But it's striking as well, even then his soothing and his comfort also comes from the Lord. Isn't that striking? If you look at the passage, there's this huge irony in the passage. Saul calls for someone to relieve him of his torment. Which means the rejected king unknowingly calls the newly anointed king to seek relief. Verse 19 um, seems to sit at the heart of this. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David, who's with the sheep. Saul calls for David. Not only is David the Lord's choice, but irony of ironies, David is Saul's choice as well. The chosen king is a means of grace to the rejected king. Even though Saul has walked out on the Lord, even though he is under a level of present judgment from the Lord, the Lord still stops him from falling apart. And David is his means of grace to do that. Do you see that? It's interesting, isn't it? I wonder then if we need to reflect upon a little bit of what some of that might mean for us. The picture as we finish, the kindness of God to rebellious people. We too, like David, like Jesus, are to rightly love a world under judgment. There are different kinds of love. But in the same way that God loved the world, so we are to love a world under judgment, a world that has walked out on God, that has rejected him. He gives us his spirit. He anoints us. He says, this is going to be hard. It will be a battle. It will be complicated. You will struggle. But I will be with you that you might bless this world. 
experiencing something of my judgment. I will give you a blessing that you might be a blessing. I will pour out love on you that you might be loving. I will give you my peace that you might come and bring peace. We too are to be a means of grace as we serve and love our neighbour. As we serve and love even those who have rejected him, who have walked out on him. And so I guess the homework, in one sense, is how can you be a blessing this week? As you look at your diary, as you think through what's coming up, as you think through who am I going to be rubbing shoulders with? Who will I be spending time with? Who are those people even that I find really difficult? How can I be a blessing to them? How can I be a blessing to those who have walked out on the Lord? It it won't be easy. There might well be proverbial spears thrown. That'll be future weeks for David. But you see, while we were still sinners, it, it cost him. But Jesus came and brought us peace and equips us with his spirit and he sends us out. And so in one sense, when we are despondent as we look at our lives, as we look in at our hearts, then we think, how did I get here? At the same time, we can have a confidence that says, I know what the Lord wants from me. I know how he can use me. I know that he is good. I know he has a plan. And I can see how he can use a king like Jesus to bring about such extraordinary blessing where he can use little people like us equipped by him to live for him. Let me pray for us. Lord, we are challenged by how different we are from you. We are challenged and convicted by the way that we so easily Just go for the outward appearance. Just judge people by what they look like. And say, change us, please, that we might increasingly think as you do, as we increasingly care about the internals, the the reality of people's hearts. Lord, and we're challenged too by the, the fact that as soon as your spirit is given to your King David, there is a battle. And yet it's through him that you bring peace, even to those who are now your enemies. Give us wisdom, please, to know what that might mean for us as individuals and for us as a church. In your son's name. Amen.